This is Common Ground, KCRW Berlin's new talk show, encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today we will talk about a much-anticipated law generating a lot of debate. KCRW Berlin's Dina El-Sayed explains. The Digital Services Act is to be Europe's first big overhaul of internet regulations in 20 years, and its proponents hope it will level the playing field against the tech giants that dominate our lives. On a recent talk show aired by public broadcaster NDR, German satirist and television personality Jan Böhmemann explained it this way. He said, imagine a 14th century marketplace and the whole village is there, talking and bartering. But there is only one powerful person setting the rules for that marketplace. People ask, why is only one person determining what we get to do? This is our place. Bermemann added, it's up to society to make those rules. And they shouldn't serve to maximize profits for Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey or the Google bosses. Google-Chefs ähm, dienen der Ort, an dem wir sind. Das, das steckt dahinter. Deutschlandfunk Nova Update. On the Deutschlandfunk show Nova, European Parliament member Timo Wölken, a social democrat who has worked on the proposed Digital Services Act, took Böhmermann's analogy a step further. He said, in the 14th century marketplace, there is a smaller section where vegetables and pigs are traded. These small vendors are drowned out in the larger marketplace. But if they can connect through a direct access route to the customers, they can more easily make a sale. Wilkin explained, in other words, one of the solutions to giant company domination of the Internet could be interfaces connecting to smaller enterprises. The parliamentarian also described European officials' push to standardize the response of social media giants to offensive or illegal content. Wilkin said, so far, there are no uniform rules. Facebook reacts differently than Twitter, and they react differently than Instagram. That must not be, and users who feel their content was illegally deleted must have a meaningful way to appeal. But can legislation from Brussels governing the digital world at this late stage make a difference. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed. My guests will answer her question and more on today's show, and they'll explain why the Digital Services Act matters to you. Here in our Berlin studio are Travis Todd, the co-founder of Silicon Allee, which is a group for tech startups and enthusiasts in the German capital, and Mackenzie Nelson, a project manager with the nonprofit research and advocacy organization Algorithm Watch. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Joining me on the phone from Bonn is Alexandra Gies, a member of the European Parliament who is with the Greens and working on the proposed Digital Services Act. Also on the line from Amsterdam is Lina Roche, a journalist with the Daily Tagesspiegel who writes about digital politics and artificial intelligence. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks for having us. Uh, hello from Amsterdam and thank you for having me. Alexandra, you get the Herculean task of explaining this upcoming law in a nutshell. I think it was perfectly explained because today's Internet is the marketplace where everybody exchanges their opinions and their goods. This is where people form their political opinion. It has a huge influence on our democracies, but also on our economy. And therefore, the European Commission, the European Parliament, the European Council are working on a new regulation, on new rules for this huge marketplace, this social world we live in. We know today there are a few huge companies that are practically 
dictating their own rules to everybody. And we think that rules should be decided in a democratic matter by democratic governments. Are there no rules there now that protect us? Well, um, the rules we have are 20-year-old, and they come from what we call the e-commerce directive. And I think it's not up to the task anymore. The e-commerce directive uh, guaranteed the exemption of liability. It's basically more or less what the Americans call Section 230. That means that platforms are not liable for what users say on their platforms. And that was and is a very important rule in order to guarantee freedom in the Internet. And this is the rule that basically allowed the Internet to develop as it is. The second important rule that was contained in the e-commerce directive was the ban on general monitoring. So uh, platforms or governments are not allowed to monitor everything going on on the Internet, and that is very important for our freedom. But 20 years ago, the Internet was not dominated by a handful of very powerful companies. We had lots of blogs, we had lots of single people, uh, smaller organizations, companies putting their content there, and users had to go and look for it. It was like a colorful garden with a lot of different flowers, and you went for the flowers you were interested in as a user. Today, it's more like a labyrinth, and those paths, those ways that the companies tell us are their recommender systems, like YouTube's Next Up, for example, or the Facebook algorithms that decide which posts we see. And therefore, it's a completely different situation we are dealing with. And I think this is what we need to break up. We really have to look at the business model and what it is doing to our markets and especially to our democracies. And this is why we urgently need new rules. We need more transparency. And um, we need to look into the whole business model. A lot of data is collected on single users in the Internet through advertising, through every time you, you visit the website. This data is aggregated together with data collected offline, and it is all put together. And users can be manipulated by this data, and they are. And that is why the advertising in the Internet is so successful, and this is why these companies make so much money. And I think this is a huge problem because we are not the clients of these companies. We are the product. We are being sold. And therefore, it is so important that we have some transparency and some democratic control over that and make the Internet to that free marketplace again that we used to have before, where we can exchange opinions without being manipulated. Now, you said on your website that the Digital Services Act gives Europe a chance to set global standards. Travis, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think as we've seen with legislation like the GDPR in uh, Europe, whatever your opinion on if that's a good law or not, we're seeing that other people, other states, other countries are using that as kind of the standard for digital privacy and uh, data transfer. And I think the same thing will happen with any law that's passed for the G Digital Services Act. The U.S. will look to that or states, depending on who ends up setting those regulations, as kind of the framework to do business digitally with Europe. The point I'd like to get across as soon as I can, though, is that in all this talk about Facebook and Google and YouTube and these big players, I'm here to represent the little guy, the startups. And oftentimes in these political discussions, the little guys are overlooked in trying to go after the big fish. And that's my main concern with this law is that by trying to regulate um, big internet platforms, we're going to do a lot of damage downstream to the smaller startups and actually make it much more difficult for us to innovate and create new businesses here in Europe. 
And that's going to be the future of Europe. If we're going to pass amazing legislation that allows us to create a beautiful digital economy, we also need startups to be able to thrive in that economy. Let me ask you to give some specific examples of that. What exactly would this law do that would create the scenario you are describing about small businesses and startups? First off, I would say we are in favor of a European-wide legislation that harmonizes the market so that startups don't have to scale up in 27 different countries. They can scale across Europe with one rule set. So we're in favor, but we need those laws to be as innovative as the companies they're regulating. So, for example, there is, as uh, Alexandra mentioned, this limited liability exemption that exists now that means that platforms are not liable for what their users post. And this is really important for for young companies. And as an example, we have in our uh, portfolio of companies a digital online education platform. But this law could be misconstrued where the platform is liable for if one of the students says something racist, and then they try and uh, educate against that or something like that. So this is ways I think we need to be really aware of all the effects that these kind of laws can have, especially on young companies who don't have the resources of a Google or Facebook to actually create the algorithms and everything that are necessary. Lena, most of us, or more of us, I should say, deal more often with the bigger giants like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, and eBay. How does this law affect how we will interact with them? Does it give us more power and make it easier for our concerns to be known? I think that will crucially depend on uh, what ends up being in the law. I mean, for now, we're only hearing uh, bits and pieces from what the commission is now putting in its proposal, which it will put out probably on 2nd of December, that's the plan. And only then they will enter into discussions with the parliament, which is, of course, already setting some rules itself and saying which way it wants to go, and discussions with the member states. So in the end, the process could take several years until this law is actually passed, and we'll see what comes out at the end, right? Um, But the idea is certainly that we as users get less targeting maybe if we don't agree to be targeted, that uh, we have a better understanding of ranking, of why we see certain posts, and also have a better understanding if we're being discriminated against. We've so far talked a lot about the liability issue, which will make up a huge part of the Digital Services Act, but actually just as huge will be um, the aspects regarding competition and then as individual users We also want to have more choice, right? We want to know why Amazon ranks a certain product high because we want to base our decisions on it. And we want to have a choice essentially between different services and not just the services of these giants. So those rules will try to make sure that we have a better choice. Mackenzie, do you feel that the proposed law does enough to protect individuals from fraud, you know, from this sort of abuse or even from hate speech? I think that it's important that Lena points out that we don't yet have a piece of legislation to be able to scrutinize. So it's difficult to say exactly what it will and will not be doing. Um, But kind of our top line demand for the DSA is that we need meaningful transparency. And this is something that Alexandra already mentioned. Um, Transparency is one of the main priorities. Uh, Lena also mentioned about how platforms, especially big platforms, rank or moderate content. And what we have at the moment is that platforms know a lot about us. But when it comes to watchdog organizations like researchers who want to understand how algorithmic boxes operate, it's a complete Wild West. And you have platforms who kind of control the research agenda 
and set the parameters for who can and cannot get access to data that they would need to understand platforms. And so especially when it comes to confronting challenges like hate speech, uh, what we really need at the core of the DSA is more meaningful transparency and data access for researchers. Alexandra, do you think that there has been enough transparency even in this process to get uh, the DSA basically into some sort of format that can be voted on? I understand European politics is very complicated, but the process basically hasn't even started yet. As Lena said, so far it's only the European Commission working on the proposal they're going to make December 2nd, and that is still work in progress. They do talk to us about what they are doing. Um, they ask us for our opinions. I think they exchange their views with, with national governments as well to come up with something that has some chance of having success. Then at the same time, parallel to that, Parliament, the European Parliament is drawing up what we call the own initiative reports. That is, we sort of write down what is the Parliament's opinion and this is what we vote on next week in the plenary session, but it's just our parliamentary input for the European Commission that the European Commission should take into account with their final proposals. So, yeah, I, I don't have the feeling there is a lack of transparency on the legislative side at this moment, because when we really start the process will be December 2nd when the proposal is on the table and everybody will start discussing it. The problem is... Speaking of transparency of the process, that especially the big companies like Google and Facebook are obviously lobbying everybody, the commission, politicians, they have huge presences, and I'm saying that with the plural, in Brussels, because they're personally present with their own lobbyists, they are part of many different think tanks where you don't have Google or Facebook written up front, but they're financing it, and so you never really know what you're talking about. I mean, in Brussels, we say there's, there's no digital meeting on digital topics you can do without a person like Google, Facebook, Amazon sitting in the room. So they do have an influence on this whole process that is not particularly transparent. And we know that they are the biggest spenders on, on lobbying now. And this is something we would really need to look into. And this reaches even out to academia, um, like the, there's, there's an institute of Humboldt University dealing with, with the Internet and what it means for democratic societies, and it's co-funded by Google, which is not unusual for universities, but is, it is quite worrying in this sector because it's really hard to find someone who's an expert from academia, who is not in some way funded by one of these companies. Um, obviously, there are NGOs as well who are doing great jobs, but we all know that money does make a difference. Mackenzie, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I would love to add something about the process because we submitted um, a response to the EU Commission's public consultation on the DSA. Um, and I think it's kind of wild when you think about the, the fact that they have 3,000 submissions and a lot of those are coming from big companies. The text in and of itself was quite legalese. So even as someone who an, or as an organization that has quite a bit of expertise in the area, I think um, from our perspective, it was very much tailored to kind of the needs of industry. So I, I think that that's something to watch as the process moves forward. Travis, what's your take? Yeah, I just think that, you know, there's a lot of talk about lobbying and, and there's obviously that's a big problem. And, um, you know, a lot of it is funded by big uh, corporations. But what I think is important is a lot of interconnectivity between these big players and the smaller players like startups as well. So, for example, services that Google provides like Maps can allow companies that are smaller to scale up faster um, because they don't have to build their own mapping technology. 
So we just have to make sure that that interconnectivity is safe and helps innovation in this in this new law. And as we all mentioned, like we can still influence that and the discussions. And so we just need to make sure that the ability for startups to scale on the backs of some of these big players is still maintained while providing safety for the common users. Unfortunately, European Parliament member Alexandra Gies has a meeting, so we'll have to say goodbye to her now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about the impact of the coronavirus on the upcoming law and on the power of the tech giants. Stay tuned to Common Ground. Studio Berlin is our current affairs show here on 104.1 FM. Each week, we break down the news and take a closer look at the topics that affect our lives here in Germany's capital. Tune in every Wednesday at 10.30 a.m. and Saturday at 10 a.m. here on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Common Ground on KCRW Berlin, where we are talking about an upcoming monumental change in EU regulation of the Internet called the Digital Services Act. I'm your host, Soraya Serhadi-Nelson, and my guests are Lina Rusch of der Tagesspiegel newspaper, Travis Todd of Silicon Alley, and Mackenzie Nelson of Algorithm Watch. Before the break, we were talking about the transparency of this act uh, that we don't know much about yet because it hasn't actually been put out there except for with leaked media reports. So I want to add one more problem to the equation, and that is the pandemic, which certainly has affected every aspect of our daily lives. And I'm wondering how each of you would say it has affected this proposed act and the need for it. And we can start with you, Lena. Well, I think everyone knows from their daily pandemic life that um, it has at least shown us how dependent we are on these technologies and especially the services of these tech giants. We all know from video conferencing that it's just much more convenient. We use Facebook for staying in touch uh, with colleagues. Uh, Kids use WhatsApp to stay in in touch with uh, their teachers. So The power of these companies, especially the big ones, is actually manifesting during the pandemic. Um, So I think it just upped the pressure on uh, on European policymakers to put something forward and to make it work for the right companies, the companies we want to support who adhere to European values and put them first. Travis? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a optimistic startup founder. So I think this is actually a really great opportunity. Has uh, it actually benefited small businesses and startups? Well, it's some, some not, you know, depending on the field. Just look at, for example, how quickly it caused Germany to digitize, right? In a city where we could hardly ever pay with credit card or have digital menus at restaurants. Now you have that everywhere. So I think what it's showing is this push to digitize. And as I mentioned before, our education startup in our portfolio they're seeing a lot more interest. A lot of telemedicine companies are seeing a lot more interest. So it's really forcing some industries that were slow to digitize to digitize really quickly. And so I think with this Digital Services Act, it's an opportunity for Europe to really create something that allows us to build the businesses of the future through this pandemic, to really recover in a, in a sustainable and innovative way. Um, it's obviously a challenge to make that the right framework, but it's a really, really big opportunity. And I think that's where I see the pandemic putting everything into scope there. 
But Mackenzie, I mean, groups, or I should say companies like Amazon, have made money hand over fist during this pandemic. I mean, it seems to really have empowered the tech giants because of this reliance that we have on the digital sphere since we can't really go outside and interact like we normally do. So what does this do to the DSA? I mean, does it weaken it before it even gets out of the gate? I would agree with Lena that it shows the urgency that we need to come up with a better legal framework to govern Uh, both our economy, but also to protect user rights. So one maybe concrete example of automated content removal, there were some reports, maybe you you guys also saw them, that during the pandemic, the major platforms sent home a lot of their human moderators. So you had a situation where you had actually a really interesting natural experiment, because up until now, the story has kind of been that Mark Zuckerberg rolls up into Brussels and says, Our AI is so great at taking down content proactively and we can detect hate speech and we can do all of these things. But what we're seeing from the little information that we have is that that's not actually the case and that you've seen, um, for example, on YouTube, an over removal of potentially lawful content or potentially um, non harmful content and on Facebook, the opposite trend. So this is why for us, it's so important to make sure that we're able to have a better oversight over how these automated systems are being deployed. And that's where the DSA for us comes in. So the COVID crisis has really just shown the urgency and why it is that we need to get it right. Up next are a couple of questions we've received about this proposed law. As mentioned, there's no public draft available yet, but my guests have agreed to give the questions a shot. Hi, my name's Phil Evans from Barton in the UK. I've got a question about um, whether they intend to include a provision for harmful or misleading content, Uh, how that would work, who would define the rules, who would police it. It seems very open to abuse. Mackenzie, you want to try that one? Sure. Um, Travis and I actually do agree. And I think Alexandra Gisa, who's now no longer with us, but I'm quite sure that she agrees that it's maybe not a good idea to come up with de- extra definitions for harmful content or to mess with at least the general framework of the limited liability regime that we already have, because it, this can be exactly a slippery slope. And again, we've seen this during the COVID crisis in countries like Hungary, where they're um, tightening legal frameworks for what is um, illegal and including COVID disinformation into that mix. And I really don't think that we should be having automated systems running around trying to understand what is and is not COVID disinformation, especially in a rapidly evolving public health situation. Lena, you agree? The question is not necessarily whether you want to uh, police those, but also what the consequences of that will be, whether there will be an automatic takedown, for example, for this kind of content or not. Then we get back to this discussion that we had in Europe about the copyright directive, where there was a huge fight over companies should be able to filter out content proactively So whatever the commission proposes regarding these two different categories of content, you know, the one that's illegal and the one that is just considered harmful, whatever that will be, will depend on what the tech giants will be asked to do in those instances. Another question comes from Sarah Rehrbal, who is a graduate student at the Hattie School in Berlin. She asks how the European Commission plan to hold social media companies and intermediaries bringing together third parties on the Internet accountable in a positive rather than a punitive way. Let's start with Travis. Oh, that's a tough question. 
Um, I also one I probably can't answer because we don't know the text of the law. Has um, anything leaked out about it? <laughs> uh, not that I read, but I would like to make the point that, you know, even one of the reasons I came to Europe as an American is I believe that Europe is the leader in kind of values-based legislation, right? And they're the thought leader in kind of creating humanistic laws. And so I think everyone's objective with the DSA is to incorporate the European values of freedom and uh, freedom of expression and safety and everything into this law and make sure that the users at the end of the day are, are protected. Um, but also, I would make the point that algorithms can't solve everything. As much as everyone thinks that we're genius programmers and we'd love to believe that ourselves, we can't make algorithms to solve all this uh, kind of moderation, takedown, and harmful content discussions. It requires people with values to make those decisions. Yeah, so I, I think you know, technology can't solve everything. Are there positive incentives, Mackenzie, that you see or that you've heard about? Because, again, I know we're doing a lot of supposition here. <laughs> yeah, I would agree that algorithms can't be tasked with solving everything. Um, and there's a ton of AI hype, even within the commission, saying, you know, algorithms are going to solve climate change. And I think we need to be realistic about when it makes sense to use algorithms or deploy an algorithmic system in order to solve a given policy challenge. And with respect to the question of whether or not we can introduce positive incentives, I'm a little bit pessimistic there because what we've had in the past are these kind of non-binding arrangements like the Code of Conduct on Disinformation or um, the Code of Practice on Hate Speech, where platforms were asked to voluntarily give over information about um, how good of a job they were doing about tackling these different challenges. And what we've seen, at least from the researchers who were kind of tasked with evaluating how effective they were, is that the information that they were providing on a voluntary basis really just wasn't good enough. And so that's why we're saying that what we need is a legally binding um, frameworks that enable better access to data so that we can understand how good of a job, for example, algorithms are doing at tackling these challenges. And I think that what we'll see is they might not be able to. And then I think the competition questions will be even more important. We're running short on time, so I'm going to ask each of you to briefly explain what you think is missing from the law or if there's a provision that you think shouldn't be there. And I'll start with Mackenzie. Yeah, I'd say that the most important thing for us is transparency, um, but transparency is too often a pretty buzzword and lacks substance. So for us, we're thinking about very rigorous transparency frameworks that enable researchers to serve their watchdog function and have better oversight over these black box systems. Travis? Yeah, I think I like to look at legislation also from the startup perspective. And my wish for all laws really is that they incorporate things we incorporate into building our software products, which are KPIs. So measuring if the thing is working, if the law is working, and also review cycles so that you come back and say, like, is this law working? What do we need to change? And have that be built in from day one to these laws. Lena, anything missing from this law or that uh, shouldn't be there? I'm very curious to see uh, what they end up proposing regarding um, interoperability. So, for example, that will uh, determine whether uh, users will be able to uh, communicate with users using other services, for example, a different kind of uh, messenger. I'd be very interested to see in, in what, what they propose there and how far they go with imposing this interoperability on the providers. Well, I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say there are many of us waiting very anxiously to see what this draft will entail. 
and hopefully we'll have that information before the end of the year. That's the show for today, and I'd like to thank my guests, Lina Rusch of der Tagesspiegel newspaper, joining us from Amsterdam, Travis Todd of Silicon Alley, and Mackenzie Nelson of Algorithm Watch. It was great having you all on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks for my side. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Join us next Monday for another episode of Common Ground. You can hear our show on 104.1 FM in Berlin or stream it via the KCRW app or kcrwberlin.com. Common Ground is also available as a podcast, so download it wherever you get yours. And if you want to pose a question for our guests on upcoming shows, go to kcrwberlin.com and click on Common Ground for details. 